Hello, and welcome to the RP HealthCast by Rooney Partners. I'm your host, Jeffrey Friedman. The RP HealthCast is a weekly podcast series about the latest news and innovations in medicine and healthcare. To learn about these stories, we hand over the microphone to those who are building and writing about the future. We either speak with leaders of companies behind the latest breakthroughs in medicine and technology, or with journalists to discuss their stories on important issues surrounding the healthcare ecosystem. Everyone and every product has a story to tell. The goal of our podcast is to help tell that story and to tell our listeners why that story matters. At the time of this recording, we find ourselves still under attack and held captive by the effects of the coronavirus. This pandemic has created havoc in our society and from a healthcare point of view. Today, we have over half a million Americans with the virus and over 25,000 fatalities, almost half of which are here in New York, and it's certainly a scary time here. As social distancing is being used to help combat the virus, we've been temporarily forced to shut down a large percentage of our economy, and there's no escaping the economic impact this is having on our country. From large-scale corporations and retailers to our mom-and-pop neighborhood stores and restaurants, unemployment is reaching record-breaking levels, and employees and business owners are trying to figure out how to pay their bills for the next few months of the shutdown. Society's fear of the economic impact of this pandemic is rivaling the fear of the disease itself. As we're now entrenched for the long haul, we thought it would be very interesting to hear from someone that's been monitoring the economic fallout from COVID-19 and how it's been impacting companies of all sizes. So our guest this week is Paul Sullivan of the New York Times. Paul is the Wealth Matters columnist. He's also the author of The Thin Green Line, The Money Secrets of the Super Wealthy, and Clutch, Why Some People Excel Under Pressure and Others Don't. Paul also writes for Golf Magazine and previously wrote for the Financial Times, for the Condé Nast Portfolio, Fortune, Money, Barron's, and Bloomberg. Uh, We're very grateful to have Paul with us here. Paul, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Before we start to discuss some of your recent reporting, let's provide some context for our listeners out there. The importance of small companies to the U.S. economy is at times not really appreciated. And can you talk about some of the key data points that illustrate the scope of the impact these small businesses have on the U.S. economy? Sure. Uh, I mean, the the majority of of businesses in the United States are small businesses, 99% of them as defined by the criteria from the Small Business Association, which is any business with under 500 employees. That's something like 30 million businesses and they you know constitute a 45 percent share of our country's gdp mm-hmm. um you know another but but it's it's you know 500 to most people is 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 kind of big you know about half of all people in the u.s work for a small business but there's data out from jp morgan that says you know 88 percent of companies have less than 20 employees so 88 percent of of the companies in america have have less than than 20 employees and, and those of course are some of the businesses probably uh, most impacted by what's been going on uh, economically uh, the, the past couple of months. Yeah, I mean, that scope is completely underappreciated uh, when we hear about this big box world uh, that we live in. Over the last several weeks, your, your articles in the New York Times and the Wealth Matters section, you focused on the impact the economic shutdown has had on business. And you've written about companies of all sizes and companies that have been in families for generations, in fact. 
The title from one of the articles that you just wrote is for small business owners, hard decisions become personal. And what do you mean by that? What, what do you mean by personal? I mean that, you know, so often, you know, the, the owner of that business really knows the people that work for him or her. And in some of the, the businesses that I highlighted, there was this, you know, furniture company uh, outside of Chicago you know, it was in the fourth generation of owners, but they had three generations of people working for them. You know, there's a story that the one of the, one of the owners told me that, you know, the grandma celebrated uh, 50 years of working for the company. Her son worked for the company and her grandson worked for the con company. So, so, you know, their employees, obviously, and there's that employer-employee relationship, but because you know, there's smaller businesses, everyone's working together. You really know your employees a, a, a lot more intimately. And it, it's just so different than if you're a, a company with, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40,000 employees, you know, sure, you know, it's on some level people are known, but but not in the same level that they're known at, at a small business. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. Do you find this as a common thread or, you know, people are people, but is, are there common threads between these businesses that you interviewed? I mean, the threads in terms of how they look at their employees or the, th the threads as to, you know, how they're dealing with this current, you know, economic moment. A little bit of both. I mean, uh, there is a tons of empathy, I'm sure. But uh, are th they all have to be in the same boat right now. They're all in the same boat. And, you know, and, and I agree there there is a, a lot of empathy. But what are they what are they trying to do? You know, they don't talk about, you know, layoffs. They talk about furloughs and you know somebody who, who gets furloughed and doesn't come back is of course laid off it's, it's a kinder gentler term but you know there is this hope there is this expectation that whenever we emerge on the other side of this pandemic a lot of these you know family-owned small businesses want to bring these people back and so they've really agonized a lot over the immediate choices that they have to make often you know letting people go of course they're also cutting back on innovation cutting back on spending cutting back on you know non-essential parts of their business but you know the wisest ones the ones who have you know survived all kinds of ups and downs including you know one company i talked to for, for this week's column uh that survived the the, the spanish flu uh, uh in 1918 you know they are yeah they're, they are trying to think okay how how do i you know stay a bit in business now, but when this is over, how am I still a business? How have I still made sure that, you know, what made this a business still exist in a month, three months, a year, you know, whatever it is. And that's why these decisions are, are so, so agonizing because some of these people, you know, they're highly skilled. If you let them go, you know, they got to feed their families. They, they, they may, you know, find a different job you, you know they have to do that so you got to be careful as to which people you you let go now to keep the business alive because you're going to need to get a lot of them back hopefully uh when things get better i assume the name is different between being furloughed and being laid off right as an employee uh, it would kind of feel the same but can you what's the difference what's what's the official definition meaning there i mean you know if, if employees are furloughed you know it it, it means they, they theoretically still have uh, a, a job spot at that company. You know, this used to happen, you know, 30 years ago in the auto industry, the workers would be, you know, furloughed for X number of weeks. And there was the ex expectation that, 
you know, orders would pick up for XYZ car and they'd be brought back and be back on the assembly line. You know, the issue here is we don't know, you know, right. we don't know how we're going to emerge in X number of months and we don't know what the demand is going to be. And we don't know, you know, what businesses are, are still going to be, you know, viable concerns. So, you know, a furlough gives somebody hope, but you're, you're absolutely right. It, it feels very much the same as, as being laid off right now. Yeah. And, and you talked about companies saying we have to uh, make sure that we're actually a, a, an ongoing sustainable business after this. So in, in the same article, you wrote about Russo's, uh, which was a hundred year old fruit and vegetable company. And they're trying to, they're a hundred years old, but now they're trying to adapt and innovate, right? To avoid laying off and, 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 and losing what they, they have. So from a Darwinian point of view, I guess adaptation or survival of the fittest, what, what types of companies do you think have the best chance of survival or what do companies have to do in order to assure themselves of that next stage post-corona? I, I mean, not to be glib, but the companies that have the best chance of survival are going to be the ones that have benevolent landlords uh, and very understanding lenders because you know, people are, they, they have to, they have to cut back. I mean, revenue, in the case of Russo's, that business lost half, half of its revenue in about three days. And that's because the state of Massachusetts closed the public schools, all the universities and colleges sent home their students and all the restaurants closed. That was half of their business. The other half is the retail side. Um, but I mean, you still have half of your workforce that, that doesn't have anything to do. And, you know, other examples I've talked to, you know, some, you know, s smaller firms, tech firms, you know, what have you. Let's say they were paying, you know, $10,000 a month in rent. They need to make sure they have a cash runway of at least a year. Yeah. And that's that's difficult. So what what are they going to do? You know, hopefully they're going to go to their landlord and say, look. Uh, can we work this out? Can we cut the rent in half? Can you make it $5,000 a month? And then I'll make it up to you, you know, on the back end. And it's in the, it's in the landlord's best interest to negotiate as well, because right now nobody's going to come in and, and take their space. You, you don't have tenants knocking at the door to say, I, I want to, you know, lock myself into a, a five-year lease at X amount of dollars a, a, a square foot. And so it's really that, you know, back and forth. And one last point, you know, when I, I mentioned the, the lenders, you know, what I found is that, and we'll, I'm sure we'll touch on this later, but, you know, some of the government programs like the, the PPP loan, if you don't know your banker well, if you don't have that existing relationship with a banker, whether it's a, you know, a gigantic bank or a small community bank and have already borrowed from them and they know that you're good to pay that money back, you do your best to pay that money back. Those people um, who have those relationships are going to fare a lot better than those people who don't, because this is not a time to suddenly, uh, you know, get to know your your banker when every other customer he has is is also reaching out to him. No, I mean, absolutely. And what you're talking about before is is more for the private sector, meaning negotiate with your landlord, negotiate, you know, with different things, and that's going to have a complete trickle down effect throughout the economy because that landlord also has uh, vendors and people they have to pay for. But if we talk about the public sector um, and you started to get into that with the uh, PPP, 
what other types of federal programs, and, and we hear a lot about the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP, but as you're saying, getting to know your banker, I know a lot of business owners that are having a really tough time applying for these programs and putting in claims. Uh, so what's going on? Why is it so hard? And, and are banks playing favorites? Uh, well, why it's so hard is because in a traditional year, in any other year, uh, small business loans are about $30 billion, $30 billion for an entire year. You know, what the government was asking is for banks to help them lend out $350 billion in three months. So that, that's sort of a 40-fold increase in, in volume and, and, and velocity. Of, of lending. What happened was a lot of the big banks uh, and, and a lot of the community banks weren't already approved to be small by the, by the SBA to be small business lenders. Uh, you know, it's not, not hard to do. It's time consuming, certain criteria you need to meet, but now is not the time to try to meet all those criteria and fill out the applications. And so what happened, you know, and it's only been about a week and a half as we're talking now, since the program came into existence is People rushed to apply, right. um, but the bankers were, were overwhelmed because even if they had a small um, business lending division, let's say that was, I don't know, I'm making it up. Let's say that's 10 people uh, and they another 90 people at the bank who do all kinds of other things. Those 10 people cannot handle the volume of requests that they're getting. And even if you bring in you know 50 of the other 90 people who work at the bank, they have no experience in this. They were making, you know, home mortgages. They were, you know, <laughs> dealing with, you know, lines of credit for a business. They're doing all kinds of different things. And that's what caused this, you know, backlog. You know, are banks playing favorites? I mean, that's a kind of a loaded, it's a loaded term. What are they doing? They're working with the clients that they already know. These are the people they know first. These are the people that they have a relationship with. These are the people that have already borrowed from them. And this doesn't necessarily mean you know, the largest, biggest, you know, uh, most prominent small businesses. You know, I, I talked to a woman uh, who, who ran a business in New Hampshire um, that helps, that works with autistic kids. And she got approved very quickly. She had 17 employees got approved very quickly by a, a small uh, community bank uh, in, in her town. And so she had that relationship there. And obviously, you know, the size of her loan is nothing compared to the size of a of a 500 person firm. But she had that relationship in place. And so in that sense, she she was able to jump ahead of a lot of other people and, and get get approval for for what she needed. Yeah. From the bank's point of view, I guess the difference between that 30 billion of lending versus now the uh, the mega PPP program is it's not really uh, the banks aren't guaranteeing this. Right. The federal government is, is guaranteeing this. They are. But the the, the, the issue is that you know, the guidelines were created so quickly and they're rushed through so quickly that it's not entirely clear. I mean, an entirely new program was created in the span of a couple of weeks. Uh, that, that doesn't, you know, that's just not how it works. If, if you're making a mortgage for somebody, well, we understand property law. We understand the strictures around a mortgage. And even when you go get a mortgage to buy a house, you know, it still takes four, five, six, eight weeks to get that mortgage approved, even though a bank you know, lends money to buy homes every single day of, of the week. And so just imagine, you know, a whole new 
blown product, if used correctly or as the, the, the guidelines say is correctly, can be forgiven, uh, being rolled out. Because what happens if people don't use it correctly? What happens if these companies you know, still go bankrupt? You know, who's ultimately on the hook for that? Is it the federal government's going to pick it up or is it, you know, is the bank going to be accused of not doing its due diligence? Well, the flip side of that, how can you do due diligence when you're supposed to get all this money going out the door uh, in a matter of hours or days, not a couple of months? Right. Incredibly interesting. Thank you. Um, so that's the PPP, right? So what's the difference between the PPP and the SBA also has uh, something called the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program? What's the difference between yeah. the two? more commonly known as the EIDL uh, program, uh, and that's been around for a long, long time. And historically, what is that used for? You live in uh, South Florida, and you have a business, and a hurricane comes in and wipes out your town. That is a disaster. And therefore, there's a disaster loan program for it. And historically, that program has worked very well. You could apply for an immediate grant of $10,000, you, you put in your bank information, you, you tell them who you are, you, you put in your tax ID so they can look up and see that you're going concern that's been making money and, and paying taxes. And historically, in three days, you get that $10,000 grant. That's a grant. It doesn't have to be paid back. And then that puts you into the queue to get a, a larger loan, up to $200,000, doesn't have to be secured, but the loans go up to $10 million. You, know, you want to get a $5 million loan, you got to show why you need a five million dollar loan that's all established uh understood the problem is we have a disaster in all 50 states so it's no longer localized it's just not that hurricane in south florida you're applying for that loan from every state because every business or not every business the majority of businesses are suffering some sort of economic injury economic disaster and that whole program has ground to a halt. And what used to be a no questions asked $10,000 grant is now you get $1,000 per employee up to $10,000. And, you know, but that money hasn't gone out. I haven't talked to anybody who's actually received that money and nobody received it in, in three days. So, you know, the whole rush for this was, uh, you know, around the end of March and people are still waiting for this emergency grant. They can't get that. They're not even quite sure what's going to happen with the, the loan portion of it that's supposed to come after that grant arrives in, in three days. Right. So do you think there is a, a, a bottleneck issue or a real flaw in the design? I think there's a bottleneck issue. Again, you know, it's not designed for businesses in all 50 states to apply at once. It's designed for, you know, the regional SBA in South Florida to call up Washington and say, okay, this is what happened in, you know, fill in the blank, the greater Miami area. This is what we think the issue is going to be. And then the system works. And, you know, one of the big problems here, you know, that $10,000 grant had it been able to go out in, in, in three days was super meaningful to these small businesses with less than 20 employees, because, you know, there's other data in, in, in one of my columns that talks about, you know, most of these micro businesses, super small businesses, don't have enough cash on hand to make it 30 days. Something like 25% didn't have enough cash to make it 30 days. And another 25%, so to bring us to 50%, didn't have enough cash to make it 90 days. So a loan that, a grant that could arrive in your bank account in 72 hours was, you know, 
a huge beacon of light for these very, very small businesses. And now it's just one more layer of, of uncertainty as, as business owners try to make, you know, rational choices as to, as to what to do. Yeah. I mean, it's, as you were saying, this affects companies of all sizes, of all ages. Um, let's for our, the last couple of minutes that we have together, if we could take a minute and talk about the nonprofits, right? These are companies that are probably hurting as bad, if not worse than, uh, than all the other for-profit companies. And you wrote recently that the coronavirus is a test of how philanthropists can use their wealth to fill an enormous gap in revenue for nonprofits. You know, how hard have these nonprofits been impacted and, and how are these billionaires that you speak to and these philanthropists, how are they uh, helping out? Uh, so great question. You know, if you think about it, for example, there are two different sort of ways of giving money. You can give philanthropic dollars philanthropy or you could do charity philanthropy is something that is planned out you know months or years in advance i care about my alma mater i care about this hospital i care about this food program that is you know plant charity is an immediate response to what is happening in the world there is a hurricane in in haiti it's devastating i'm, I'm going to give money there those are and, and so understanding that these philanthropists usually have a lot of things planned out and they're going to give to their organizations. But now the pull is to, to give immediate to, to, to food banks, to give immediately to you know, charities really focused on the impact of the coronavirus. Obviously, that's incredibly important. But what happens is, I mean, people only have a limited amount of money to give, even billionaires. Um, all the money that was supposed to go to these other nonprofits that were, you know, for the arts, for music, school, what have you, they are now left wondering, well, what's going to happen? Where's the money that was here? And, you know, the spring for most of these, pretty much every nonprofit, the spring is the time to have benefits. And these benefits bring in tremendous amounts of money, sometimes 25, 30, 40% of a nonprofit's budget. Well, benefits aren't happening now. So what we have here is, is you know, kind of a, a perfect storm for these non-pandemic related nonprofits to wonder how are we going to survive? So in this column you referenced, you know, what some of the philanthropists I spoke to were doing was making sure they still fulfilled all of their pledges to, you know, the other nonprofits that they had supported so that those groups wouldn't have to worry, you know, can I keep my 20 employees, my 30 employees, can I continue to do these you know, after school programs or these enrichment programs for kids, because that was, you know, a, a, a huge question mark. And, and, you know, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but, you know, nonprofits are something around eight or 9% of, of GDP and they employ a lot of people as well. So that's not uh, an insignificant part of, of the economy and an insignificant part of the economy where you have to worry about people still having jobs. That's incredible. Do you feel, uh, you know, with speaking with some of the philanthropists, are they pulling forward some of their multi-year thinking? And does that put them into different weird tax situations? Uh, well, uh, uh, good two-part two question. Because Yes, they are pulling forward uh, some of their giving. Many give through uh, foundations. So they've already gotten the, the tax deduction when they've contributed to their private foundation. Uh, many foundations have this re requirement that you give at least 5% uh, a year a private foundation, but it's not limited to that. So they could give 10%, 20%, you know, 25%, whatever they want to do, 
they're they're allowed to do that. But you know, one provision in the CARES Act said for brand new you know cash donations, uh, there used to be a limit as to you know how much of that cash donation you could deduct from taxes. It was about more or less about fifty percent uh, if it was cash. Now a hundred percent of a cash donation could be deducted. So if you make a million dollars and you donate a uh, million dollars in in cash, you you pay no taxes this year. You know that 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 you know. So, so that was a you know government program to help you know accelerate this giving. Now, what what are these philanthropists going to look like next year? Uh, you know, I don't know how many of them are, are even thinking about that because if we don't get through this portion now, that you know beloved uh, cultural organization in Seattle isn't going to be here right. next year to even take the money. So, so better act now uh, while there's this huge need than to you know wait uh, and, and maintain your your five year giving plan. Incredibly, incredibly interesting. The impact, uh, you know, as I said before, the trickle down, but the full economic impact this is having everywhere on businesses, large and small, new and old. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for our conversation today and hope to have you back on a future episode and and talk further about some of the other articles. Thanks for having me. I, I really enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or future story suggestions, please reach out to us on social media or email us at rphealthcast at rooneyco.com or visit us on our website at rooneypartners.com forward slash rphealthcast. Additionally, if you like what you hear, please follow us, review us, and share us with your friends and colleagues. Thank you, and we hope you enjoyed the RP Healthcast. Healthcast.